Good morning. I'd like to welcome everyone here as well. Thank you for coming out and worshiping the Lord with us this morning. It's just grateful for all the songs that were sung this morning and the scripture that was read. I just feel like everything just pointed to the holiness and the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and it just causes my heart to worship, and um, I hope it did for you as well. And my prayer is this morning that the message, God's Word, would continue that and that it would continue to cause us to worship Him more because He deserves our worship more every day. My scripture uh, that I'm going to be preaching on is found in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8 this morning. Um, It's an honor to be able to preach this portion of God's Word this, this uh, portion of Scripture has come to mean a lot to me as I'm reading through it and studying it and over the last while. Um, the last time I preached, we looked at Paul's call in, in the book of Philippians here to the church to live in unity within the bride of Christ. To live in unity. And we looked at how that the truth of Christ that is in us, how His encouragement and love and participation of the Holy Spirit in us will be our source of true humility. To love one another with that same love, with that same compassion and care, and the genuineness that the Lord Himself had for us. And this came from His call to live a life worthy of the gospel. And it was by standing firm in one spirit, by striving side by side um, for that faith of the gospel, in Philippians 1.27. It is a call to live with live in unity within the church. And to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, as Paul put it, is to live as Christ and to die as gain. So the gospel being the mindset or the way of life. And for Paul, that was a sacrificial life that was never about himself, but always a life of humility that was committed to live out the gospel that saved him. And today we will look at an example of what true unifying humility within the church looks like, or what it should look like. The best, we're going to actually look at the best possible example that we could possibly look at, and that is none other than the life of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. This is what we want to look at, and we want to see if we can begin to understand the depths of the humility that Christ Jesus displayed or modeled for us by his death on the cross. And therefore, I've titled this message simply, The Greatest Example of Humility. And so, Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. 2, verse 5 acts as a bridge for the reader to move from that call to unity that Paul had in verses 1 to 4, a call to humble service to the ultimate example of humility in Christ. And that is only the only thing that can truly unify the church is the example that Christ gave us, or the humility of Jesus. And we have, in these three verses from 6 to 8, they serve as our example of none other than Jesus Christ himself. In verses 6 through 8, we will see a complete picture of the Lord's incarnation, so clearly that it should cause our hearts to worship him. 
And then these three verses along with the next three from verses 6 all the way through to 11 is sometimes known as a hymn. It's believed that some early churches would have sang this portion of Scripture um, from verses 6 to 11 to celebrate the incarnation of Christ because it's such a complete picture of the life of Christ. It is so rich in theology, in theology. It really is all of his life wrapped up in just a few verses. There's even some debate as to whether or not Paul wrote these words or if he was quoting someone else because it was, because it was a quote that may have been common in their day. But whether Paul wrote these words or is quoting someone else is, it really changes nothing. But when we read through this letter, though, we might sense that Paul, his, his tone changes as he's penning these words. Whether Paul, no, sorry, it's like Paul is breaking out in worship to the Lord. And I hope we sense that when we read it, he, when he writes these words, he wants to give the church an example to follow, and he's pointing us to Christ. So let's read from verses 5 through 11. We're going to read right through to 11 just so we get the whole, the whole picture here. He says in verse 5, and this is the bridge, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He goes on, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a great passage in God's word. In verses 5 to 8, it, we see that Paul is calling the church at Philippi to pursue unity in the body of Christ by imitating the humility of Christ, of Jesus. He is calling the church at Philippi to pursue unity in the body of Christ by imitating the humility of Jesus. Paul is trying to portray to the Philippian church, that was what he was trying to portray to the Philippian church when he wrote this, and this message is as crucial to the church today as it was to the church of Philippi when Paul wrote it. And we will explore this further by looking at three sequential pictures of Jesus as the supreme example of humility. I cannot take credit for the outline of this message. The preaching lessons we did with Pastor Mike actually had this portion of Scripture in it, and it used exactly these verses to teach us how to create an outline for a sermon. And so the main idea and the points were taken from that resource, but the explanation of these points are my own studies and notes. And so the three sequential pictures of Jesus as supreme example of humility are the sovereign who denied himself, the servant who emptied himself, and the Savior who humbled himself. These are the three things we will look at this morning as the ultimate example of humility that unifies the church. But first, let's have a look at verse 5, the bridge verse between the call to unity and the example. So in verse 5, Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And what mind is Paul talking about? He wants them to have the mind of humility, 
a mind that does nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, a mind that counts others more significant than themselves, as we've seen in verses 3 to 4. This is a mindset that Paul is calling us to. It's not just a command he has written down that we are to mechanically follow as a church, that are, you know, they're not just mechanical rules and regulations that Paul asks us to follow, but he is calling the church to have an attitude or a mind of true humility that will count others more significant than themselves. It is a passionate call from Paul to have a true desire to please God by loving his children and serving them as Christ serves them. And we are to have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. We saw that. We saw this in verses 1 and 2 of Philippians chapter 2, that believer, as believers, we have encouragement in Christ. We have comfort and love. We have participation in the Spirit and affection and sympathy. These are true realities when we are in Christ. When we are in Christ Jesus, our call is to be like Jesus. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. I'll read from verses 4 to 6. He says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So as believers, our evidence of regeneration is our desire to walk like none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. We are called to be like Jesus. He is the one we are to be like. And Jesus calls us to strive to be like him by keeping his words. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, it says, Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We are to learn from him, to be like him, and that is where we will find rest for our souls. We are called to be like Jesus. We will never be like him in the sense that we will never be perfected in that, but yet we are called to learn from him, and our desires should be to be like him. Another passage in Ephesians 4, if you want to turn there, um, here Paul is calling on the Ephesians to live a new life as believers. In verse 19, it says that some have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality and greedy practice of every kind of impurity. But to the Christians, he says, and this is Ephesians 4, verse 20, but that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, As believers, our new self is created in true righteousness and holiness after the likeness of God through His Son. And when we sin, we stain that new status as sons and daughters of the, of the Lord, of God. And so when we go back then to Philippians chapter two, 
In verse 5, when Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, this is the mind of Christ that he is calling us to, the mind of humility and then servanthood towards another. The LSB version translates this verse like this. It says, have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. It is the way we are to think. We are to have the same way of thinking as Jesus did. And Paul addresses this letter in Philippians 1 verse 1. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. And so as believers in Christ Jesus, we are to have the same mind of humility as Christ Jesus. We want to have this unselfish, humble way of thinking that always counts others more significant than ourselves and considers others' interests as well as our own. This was the way Jesus thought and how he acted. This is the mind of Christ. Christ truly displayed what it means to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. He, in humility, counted others more significant than himself, than himself, and which we will see is an incredible thing to consider that he, when we think of the fact that he is none other than the Lord himself. These things we will see this morning that he is God and he is truly the ultimate example of humility. And Paul then continues into verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6. And this is the first point that I will look at this morning. Jesus, Christ Jesus being sovereign Lord of all of creation, and yet he denied himself. So point one, the sovereign who denied himself. Verse 6 reads, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. What an incredible thing for us to try this morning to wrap our heads around. How can we even come close to understanding the great heights of what it means to be in the form of God or to be equal with God? This example will pale in comparison that I have here, but if you've ever heard of the show Undercover Boss, it's about some CEOs of these big corporations and they get makeovers done um, they go into their own businesses as new employees and they, they try to see what the people on the front lines go through. They come out of their corporate offices and their highfalutin lifestyles and they become an employee for a day. It seems like a humble thing for them to do, right? Come down to their employees level and try to understand what they deal with and how to, they can improve the workplace of their employees. Well, what Jesus did was something like that, but yet, it pales in comparison to what he truly did. It pales in comparison to how much more degrading it was for God, the Lord, Jesus Christ, to leave his throne and come to earth. He he is not just the CEO. He is the owner, the creator of all things. He is the potter and everything else, the world, the universe, and all of creation is the clay. He did not come to learn anything or to see if he could improve his creation. He knew exactly what he was coming to. He knew he was coming to a world of evil that would seek to ultimately and ultimately kill him. He made the greatest descent possible that could have possibly been made. He came to save sinners in need of a Savior. He came to save everyone whom the Father had given him. He came to do the will of his Father 
John 6, 37. He was God. He was with God, and he is one with God. He existed in the form of God, according to Philippians 2, verse 6. He was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not hold on to the fact that he was God. He had power and control over all of creation, and he could have simply spoke, and his will would be done. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 10 says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. God spoke all of creation into existence, and he did so through Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus was God, and Jesus was with God. And we have many examples of Jesus' creation power throughout the world, throughout his word, by simply speaking from his time on earth. And Pastor Mike has been taking us through some of these miracles in Matthew where Jesus shows us that he possesses the same power to be able to speak things into being. We saw how he cleansed people from leprosy in Matthew 8. We see that by simply teaching Peter's mother-in-law's hand, her fever left her and she was instantly restored to health so that she was able to serve him. He spoke to the wind and the sea and he calmed the storm. He cast out demons and he healed the lame. These were all instantaneously and were simply by the spoken word of Jesus Christ. He is indeed God and he has power to give life. Matthew 9, Jesus gave life to a dead girl. She was dead and by taking her hand, he restored her life. Matthew 12, verse 9, Jesus here shows he can create the intricacy of a human body by simply speaking it into being. A man with a withered hand, it seems it was shrunken by disease. It was deformed. And Jesus simply says in verse 18, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like his other hand. We have more. We have examples of Jesus creating food for people to eat. In Matthew 14, we read of great crowds that followed Jesus and his disciples around. They only had five loaves of bread and a few fish. I want to just read this uh, for us in Matthew 14, starting in verse 16. Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And he said to them, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men besides women and children. What a clear picture of his power making by, of making something by simply speaking. He had the power of God. He had the form of God, and he was God. There are many more times in Scripture where Jesus displayed his power and his godly form. He raised Lazarus from the grave in John 11 when he had already been dead for four days. He walked on water 
Matthew 14. He showed the world his power, his ability to create his power over all of creation. And he even can see what is in the heart of man, according to John 2.25. He was in the form of God. His people did not even know him. Unlike the TV show, the employees had no idea the CEO was coming. God's people had all the writings that foretold of his coming and the Savior, of the Savior, and yet they did not know who he was. They did not recognize God incarnate. But the point that I want us to see is the fact that he was with God. He was indeed God. In every aspect, he was God. He was in the form of God before his incarnation, and he remains in the form of God in his incarnation. His outward appearance changed in his incarnation, but who he truly was did not change. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He holds the universe by the word of his power. It doesn't say he had the universe in his hands and he no longer has it, but that he holds the universe by the word of his power. He continuously holds the universe by the word of his power. He did not stop holding it. And again, we have seen this in Christ Jesus, but by even having the power over the wind and the storms, the universe obeys him. In his incarnation, he changed his appearance, but yet he remained in the form of God. So back in Philippians 2, verse 6, the word form means the essential form that never changes. There are two kinds of form. One is an essential form that never changes, and the other, or that inner being, and the other is the bodily form that changes by appearance. John MacArthur, in his commentary, used the example of a man. When a man is first born, he is in the form of a man. He, is, he was in the body of a baby, but still a man. And as a man grows, his appearance changes, but who he is internally is still a man. His form never changes. My essential being is that of a man, not a woman, but a man. You cannot change who you are from birth. Your essential form is who you are from birth. In today's world, it seems like they think they can change that, but nothing can change who God created you to be. We are who God created us to be, and our appearance changes as we grow. From just an embryo in our mother's womb till full adulthood, our outward appearance changes, but our essential form never changes. And this is how Jesus took on the appearance of a man to come to earth. He was in the form of God, but his outward appearance changed in order to fulfill the will of the Father. He never gave up being one with God. His essential form never changed, but he added to himself the nature of man, but never forsaking who he truly was, and that was God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning he did not hang on to it. 
He was sovereign Lord and he denied himself of that. He came down from his home with God. He was in perfect peace and in perfect harmony with God the Father. He felt no pain or sorrow. He was in the glory of God. He was one with the Father and he did not hang on to that. He came down from there. He denied himself that perfect spot with the Father that come to come and save sinners. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was in the form of God. He denied himself those qualities. He did not hold on to the power that was rightfully his. He did not use his position or his place with God for himself. He did not hold on to what was rightfully his to hold on to. He was in the form of God. He was essentially God by his very nature, and he did not hold on to that. What a truly great example of humility for us to follow. And when Paul said in verse 3 that we should do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, this is truly what that looks like. This is the example of that that we are to follow. One instance where we can see where Jesus not, was not grasping or he was not holding on to his equality with God is when Jesus was portrayed and he was about to be arrested and some of his disciples wanted to fight for him. They wanted to protect him. But in Matthew 26, 50, 53, Jesus says, do, not think that I, do you not think that I can appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? He had the power to destroy every one of his enemies with only a word, and yet he did not hold on to that. Instead, he humbly submitted himself to the will of the Father only to go to the cross to pay for the sins of all who will come to him. He could have at a word had revenge on all of his enemies, but instead refused to hold on to his rightful place. He denied himself of that place. He did that for you and for me. This is the exact opposite of selfish ambition and conceit. He did more than that, though. The sovereign not only denied himself of his rightful place with the Father, but in verse 7 it says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That is the second point, the servant who emptied himself. Christ Jesus, sovereign Lord, God of all creation, emptied himself What this does not mean is that Jesus emptied himself of his deity, of who he was. He didn't empty himself of that or in some way give up who he was or his deity. He remained fully God. Jesus took on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. He added to who he was. As we have seen in all the passages we looked at, Already, he, has, he was indeed God, and he was in the form of God, and he never stopped being God. So what can this mean, then, that he emptied himself? And I looked up the word empty, and the word literally means to empty, to make empty or vain. And so Christ Jesus did of himself, he being fully God, and completely and in complete control, he made himself empty. It wasn't... It wasn't that he emptied, sorry. Yeah, he, he was in control and he emptied himself. He wasn't like he, 
he gave up who he was, but he, by adding to himself, emptied himself. I'm going to try and make this clear. It's hard to explain, but he, God the Son, emptied himself. He was still God, and we know he was not void of his deity, which we've already seen. And his, we've seen that through all of his miracles, everything he did, he showed that he was indeed God. On the mountain with Peter, James, and John, Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light, Matthew seventeen two. His glory and his deity was not gone, but Jesus emptied himself. As the New King James Version says, he made himself of no reputation. It's hard, uh, it's hard to explain, but if we look at the verse, just at verse Philippians 2, verse 7, it says, He emptied himself, how? By taking on the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. And so it says, so when it says he emptied himself, it means that he, in a sense, covered or he veiled himself. He chose to cover up his deity instead of using it to glorify himself. He could have become famous in a sense by using all of his godly form and built an earthly kingdom, but he chose not to. He showed enough times through his life that in his divine being, he was fully God and he was truly one with God. Colossians 2.9 tells us, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So we have so much evidence of him being God. And so this goes against those, there are those that claim that Philippians 2 verse 7 means that he actually was no longer fully God. But we know he was. We have seen that. But it says, we have seen that he has not emptied himself in the sense that he is no longer God, but that he has covered or he has hid his holiness or his deity from the world. God cannot not be God. Jesus is God and therefore cannot not be God, even if he takes on the form of a servant. But because he is God, he can do with his form what he pleases, and it pleased him to empty himself in the way that his true essential form was hidden. He willingly covers himself by taking the form of a servant in the likeness of men to fulfill his own will. And that is to pay for the sins of all who will ever believe in his name for the forgiveness of their sins. Remember, he could have called 12 legions of angels to come to his aid. It just shows his charge even over the angels. He could have killed every one of his enemies that came to him before his arrest by simply speaking a word, by simply saying die to them if that had been his will. But he didn't. He was on a mission to do the will of the Father. He was in the form of God, and instead of holding on to that, he veiled his essential form, his essential being, by being born or taking on the form of a servant. Again, verse 7, it says, By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That is how he emptied himself. He emptied himself by adding to himself. He was in the form of God. And here it says he took on the form of a servant. He was one with God and he came down and he became a servant. Again, in the undercover boss scenario, the CEO acts as an employee for a time. But Christ did not just act as a servant. It says he became a servant. He took on the form of a servant. 
2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He became poor. He did not just do it for a day. He experienced every part of humanity. He was indeed fully man and fully God. Philippians 2 verse 6, he is in the form of God. And now in verse 7 it says he takes on the form of a servant in the likeness of man. He didn't merely put on a slave's garment, so to speak. He actually became a slave in the fullest of sense. He became a bondservant, literally meaning in bondage to. He, who was he a slave of? I would say he was a slave to the will of the Father. John thirty six thirty eight. Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He served the Father with his life and he did it for our sake. Matthew twenty twenty eight says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Other versions say he took on the form of a bond servant back in Philippians. The LSB version says he emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave. A bond servant or a slave normally had no possessions. A bond servant in the times of Christ would have relied completely on his master. Most bond servants would have owned nothing while they were the bond servant of another. Even his or her life would have been the property of their master. And so is Jesus at complete submission to the Father's will. He shows us the greatest example of humility possible. In John 13, we read about Jesus washing the dirty feet of the apostles, a job reserved for the lowest of the lowest servants. Jesus, the second person of the triune God. He was born in the likeness of men, taking on the form of the slave, and he washed his servants' feet, or his disciples' feet. Jesus Christ emptied himself by adding to himself. He was in the essential form of God, and he added to himself the outward form of man by becoming a man. Not a man of power and wealth, but a slave. I was sharing this second point with my family the other day, and Jermaine said, well, it was kind of like, if LeBron James would take the bodysuit that weighed him down and changed his outside shape so he could not play basketball very well anymore. He would just be a common basketball player like everyone else at best. Inside, he would still be the, maybe one of the greatest basketball players of all time, but on the outside, he would not be very good at all anymore. And I thought, maybe that's a good analogy. Maybe that's kind of like Jesus, he covered his deity. He covered himself up. We could not, the world did not recognize him But in his essential form, he was still God. He did not change. On the the mount, when when he was transfigured before Peter, James, and John, it's like he just opened that up temporarily for them to see. His glory shone through. It was there the whole time. Again, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, which we looked at earlier, he became poor so that we might become rich. For your sake and for my sake, he became poor. Philippians 2 verse 7 says, He was born in the likeness of men. 
And then in verse 8, it says, He was found in human form. He left his place with the fathers to come to earth. He was born of a woman. He grew up as a child, never sinned, even one time. He was pure in heart and in deed. And he was not even recognized as the Lord. He was found in a human form, meaning the world saw him just as a man. Matthew 12, or Matthew 13, sorry, verse 55, when Jesus was in his own hometown and he was teaching in the synagogues, it says that they were astonished and, astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? This man. He was just a man to them. They had no idea who he was. They continued in verse 55. They said, this, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? He was found in human form. They thought he was just another man. Even his brothers, according to John 7 verse 5, did not believe in him as Lord. They too thought he was just a man. This is how Jesus was recognized on earth. The Lord was known as a man. He was found in human form. From being in the form of God to being found in human form, and not just any man. He was a servant, a lowly man, who had nothing to call his own. He had no earthly possessions. Again, we see the ultimate example of truly doing nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. A true example of humility by counting others more significant than yourself. A true example of looking out for the interests of others. And while we would think that we can't get much humble, much more humble than that, right? But yet, Jesus did. He continues to humble himself. Verse 8, it goes on to say, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that is my last point, the Savior who humbled himself. He was the sovereign Lord, and he denied himself of that. He emptied himself. He didn't hang on to that. He became a servant in the likeness of men. And then in verse 8 it says, Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was the sovereign Lord who became a servant so that he could be our so that he would be our savior he made the greatest descent possible i think if we were to go from an extreme high to such an extreme low as jesus did when he left his place with the father and came to earth and took on the form of a servant and being found in the form of man we would likely not survive that without the lord's help anyway there, there is one example in the scriptures that comes to mind when I try to think of how much it really costs Jesus to leave his place with the Father, to come to earth, and to serve us. And that is the story of Job. And even that account does not do justice to the extent of what it cost Christ or what he truly gave up. Because all the wealth in the world could not even come close to the riches of being in the glory of God the Father. And I'm sure if you've ever read the book of Job, you would agree with me, it seems almost at times like it's too much. 
our emotions get into that story, your mind do anyway, and we would like to, to read that God just strikes Satan dead instead of allowing him to continually try his servant Job. Job goes from extreme wealth and prosperity to losing absolutely everything and everyone. All of his children died. All of his animals and his prosperity was destroyed. He was struck with loathsome swords from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which he scraped himself as he sat in ashes. Job 2, 7-8. Can we imagine? Try to imagine that. Try to imagine the extent of the loss in just such a short time. It would be almost unbearable. Well, because Jesus is Lord and he came to earth and he took on the form of a man, he went from creating the earth and ruling the earth, Psalm 24, 1, to becoming a man. And not just any man, but a servant, the lowest of men in the context of which he was born. If we truly understand the downgrade that Jesus had to endure to come to earth, it should cause us to weep. It should break our hearts. It is more than any man could bear. And so my point has been to try and to help us to get a better understanding of what the cost, of what it cost Jesus to come to earth. And I feel like it just can't be done in a good enough way that we truly understand it to the fullest extent of what it costs, of what the cost truly was. But if you have been following me, and if, and if, then we might be tempted to think that this can't get any worse. He can't get any lower or descend any further. Just like we may have felt reading through the book of Job. But in the life of Jesus, it continues downward. He continues to humble himself. It says in verse 8 that he humbled himself as if that is even possible to humble himself more. But it says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There is no greater expression of love for someone than to be willing to die for that person. And this is the love of Christ for the church, for his bride. He was willing to die. Romans 5, verses 6 to 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We might be willing to die for a good person, for a person that we would call good. We can, we can imagine maybe a time where in order to protect our loved ones, our wives or our children, that we would be willing to die in order to save them. And why would we? Why would we be willing to do that? What could compel anyone to lay down his life for another? It would be love. It would be our love for them that, we would be, that would cause us to do that. That is the only reason someone would do that. Some would say they are willing to die for a country. Many are willing to go to war and to risk dying for their country. But not many, if any, would be willing to sacrificially walk out into the battlefield without a weapon and just lay their life down. This is what Jesus did. He had all the firepower in, that you can imagine, and yet he was obedient 
to the point of death because he loved us. He being God was the only sufficient sacrifice that could truly once and for all time pay for the sins of those who will believe. John 10, 17 to 18 says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus was not forced to die. He willingly laid down his life. We just seen in John chapter 10, verse 18, that this, the charge was from the Father. But Jesus chose to be obedient because of his love for the bride. Excuse me. As we have seen before, even in John 6, 38, Jesus came to do the will of God, but he chose to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then in John fifteen thirteen, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend, for his friends. He was obedient to the Father. He loved us, and that is why he was obedient. We were his friends. This was the charge from God the Father to God the Son, and Jesus Christ willingly laid down his life because he loved us. But it was not a graceful death. It was not a death of honor. It was death on a cross. As Philippians 2 verse 8 says, even death on a cross. The most despicable form of death. MacArthur's commentary says, death on the cross was reserved for the slaves and the lowest of criminals, the enemies of the state. The Romans even had a law that no Roman could be crucified on a cross because it, was, it brought too much shame. It was a brutal way to die. And it was the most humiliating form of execution. When someone died by way of the cross, they were considered cursed. It was the most inhumane way of dying known to the world at that time. Paul wrote to the Galatian church in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He was beaten he was spat upon. He was mocked. He was stripped of his garments. And he was hung on a tree. Bloodied and naked, he hung there for you and for me so he could remove the curse that was meant for you and for me. What a Savior! What an example for the saints to follow. What an example of looking out for others and doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. The example of true humility of Christ from his place with God the Father all the way to his death on the cross should serve as motivation for us to serve one another. The Hendrickson New Testament commentary wrapped up this portion of scripture like this. Quote, the underlying thought in verses 5 to 8 is this. Surely if Christ Jesus humbled himself so very deeply, you Philippians should be constantly willing to humble yourselves in your own small way. 
Surely if he became obedient to the extent of death, yes, death by a cross, you should become increasingly obedient to the divine directions and should accordingly strive more and more to achieve your lives, in your lives, the spirit of your master. That is the spirit of oneness, lowliness, and helpfulness, which is pleasing to God, end quote. And I would like to add us here this morning to that plea. If you are a believer, and if you truly believe that Jesus Christ, the sovereign Lord, he left his place with the Father, he took on the form of a man, he became a slave, he became poor so that we might become rich, and he willingly died on a cross to pay the penalty for your sins as a substitution in your place, then I ask you, should we not also strive to be in that spirit of oneness, lowliness, and helpfulness that is pleasing to God? Should we not strive to be like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Let us never forget what it cost our Lord and Savior to make atonement for us. Let us have that mind among ourselves that is only possible through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if there are those here this morning that have never trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, then I would call, then I would call you to come to Him. I call you to consider what Jesus truly did and what it truly cost Him to pay for your sins. Because He was God. He was truly righteous and, is the only, and that is the only reason why he could sufficiently pay for the penalty of your sins. Without that sacrificial death on the cross by none other than the Lord incarnate, then you are without hope. Repent and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today. Romans 10.13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we come before your throne of grace again and we stand, we understand that because we have never been physically in your presence, it's hard for us to truly comprehend what it costs you to come to this earth. But we thank you, Lord, for your word and that it shows us and it helps us to understand the greatest example of humility known to man. Father, may we be encouraged this morning to consider our ways and to consider others before ourselves. Help us as a church to glorify you in our way of thinking. Help us to put on the mind of Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.